Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu. Today happens to be week, I believe, eight in our weekly Sutta explorations. And we'll continue on with the group of five out of which we have seen so far Dabba, we have seen uh, Bahia, we have seen Pukusati last time, the king who left his throne to become a bhikkhu, and then today we'll meet bhikkhu number four, Kumara Kassapa. Today's sutta again is the Vambika Sutta, which is the termite mound or the anthill, simile of the anthill. Here we have again the deva, the anagamin deva from the pure abodes, from the Suddhavasa realm of Brahmas appearing to one of his former companions on the path. For all those of you who are new to this uh, link of stories, the last few suttas at least, there were seven bhikkhus once at the time of the Kassapa, Buddha's dispensation, where they gathered together and they said, you know, the Dhamma is becoming more and more corrupt and not a lot of people are practicing. So it's dying. The teachings are disappearing. So let us make a determination and go into seclusion. So seven of them decide to do so and they climb up to the top of a huge boulder, a rock, and they cut themselves loose from the rest of humanity through this ladder that connected this boulder to the rest, you know, for them to go and get alms, food, etc. So they cut that loose so that they are completely on their own and with, their, with whatever energy they had left, they didn't have any extra food, they didn't have anything other than what was in their stomach already. So two of them already uh, taste the Dhamma. One of them becomes an Arahant within five days and the within seven days, I believe, the second one becomes an Anagami. The other five push through with their determination, with their willingness to go all the way without relinquishing. None of them jumped off the cliff they wanted to attain. However, they didn't have enough paramis to attain in that lifetime. 
and they eventually, all of them died. But none of them ended up in any realms other than the Deva realms during all that long time period until their paramis, their perfections were suitable enough for them to meet the next Buddha, which was our Gautama, Lord Buddha, and his dispensation. So they were born in different parts of India at the time of Lord Buddha's dispensation. And Dabba became an Arahant at the age of seven, as we have seen. Meanwhile, the Anagamin Brahma, because of his deep love and compassion towards his former com uh, companions on the path, he would always look as to where are his former companions and how could he lead them to becoming Arahants, or at the very least to see the Dhamma, to at the very least become a Sotapanna. And wherever he found them, so he would go and encourage them. That's what he did with Bahia, Daruchiriya, Bahia of the bark cloth, who rushed to meet the Lord Buddha from the area near Mumbai, today's Mumbai. And then last week we saw King Fukusati, who became a venerable after hearing a single teaching from sent to him by uh, King Bimbisara, who was a student of Lord Buddha's. And he relinquished his throne and came all the way down to Rajgaha, walking. And then Lord Buddha realized that he's ready. So he left Jetavana and he went to Rajgaha. And that's where he taught him the Datu Vibhanga Sutta, which we covered last week. So today it is the Vammika Sutta, where we see Kumara Kassapa, who is already a bhikkhu. And his former companion, now again, the Brahma Anagami, he appears before him and encouragingly gives him a set of 15 riddles and he says, there's only one person who can decode it for you. And that is Lord Buddha or one of his Arahants or somebody who has learned it from them, nobody else. So as uh, you have um, become accustomed to, um, I'd like to present a background story because I find them extremely beneficial to give us a context, give us a better understanding of what is taking place because this also assists us, aids us into understanding being there almost and developing this sense of relatedness to what was happening in the story instead of just reading it or listening to it like a cute story of some sort. But there's depth to it. These were human beings, not so different than us, although separated by time. So who was Kumara Kassapa? Uh, well, his uh, mother was the daughter, daughter of a, um, 
a wealthy merchant in Rajagham. And, but she had a longing for the Dhamma. So her parents wanted her to be married off to another rich person. So she tries to resist, but then they, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a culture that she didn't feel, uh, well, she wasn't uh, allowed to uh, leave the household life, the lay life and become a, a monastic. So she, you know, they marry her off to this wealthy person who fortunately for her uh, eventually sees how much she, her heart is dedicated to the Dhamma. He gives her his consent. So she goes and becomes a bhikkhuni. This is at the time where bhikkhuni order had been established by Lord Buddha. However, there was the Buddha's nemesis, uh, uh, his cousin, Devadatta, who had his own, um, well, he was kind of like the supervisor. He was like the director of a group of bhikkhunis at the time. So she ends up becoming ordained in that group of bhikkhunis. However, unbeknownst to her, she was pregnant. Now, the time comes where it's no longer uh, hidden. It's, uh, you know, it, it is, you know, it's manifested the fact that she's pregnant. And when she goes and tells her companions on the holy life, they immediately take her to Devadatta, who without asking any questions, she ju he just expels her. He says, get out, you're, you're, you're an unclean bhikkhuni. You, don't, you know, uh, no longer belong here. And she's very distraught as one can imagine. So she goes to Lord Buddha, fortunately. And Lord Buddha sees what's happened, but because he had to make sure that everything runs properly, because the Lord Buddha always taught, uh, taught his, the Dhamma and always considered the ramifications of whatever he said and done at that time and how it might be played out, how it might be translated, how it might be interpreted, etc. especially when it came to the Vinaya. That's why Lord Buddha uh, trusted Venerable Upali. Venerable Upali, if some of you recall, he was uh, in his lay life, he was the barber to the royal Sakya princes. And he, along with other uh, groups of uh, princes had uh, relinquished the lay life and had become a bhikkhu in those uh, earlier days. So, but he had gained the trust of Lord Buddha as being very meticulous when it came to the uh, rules uh, that uh, monastics have to follow. So he uh, asked Venerable Upali to investigate the matter seriously and to see if it is true that she deserves to be expelled or are there other things, facts, so Venerable Upali, in a very ingenious way, goes and uh, asks for the assistance of um, the benefactress, the great uh, philanthropist of, uh, of that part of India, of, of Savati and uh, also Rajika. She was very, very exceedingly wealthy. Um, and she was very wise. She had 10 children. She had over 100 grandchildren. So she, along with uh, other aristocratic and well-to-do um, respectable women of uh, 
that society were asked to come in to investigate the matter with this bhikkhuni. And the Sakha, uh, that was the name of the benefactress, uh, she also asks uh, the king, King Pasenati, to also be present to intervene to make it more official. So long story short, it is proven uh, that uh, the bhikkhuni had become pregnant prior to becoming ordained. So this was, you know, becoming ordained was, was, was after the fact that she had become pregnant. So without a doubt, uh, it's official and, um, and she is readmitted, obviously not under the auspices of, of Deva, that, that's community. So, uh, and uh, the child is Kumara Kassapa. So when he is born, uh, they say that he had a beautiful uh, golden uh, body, uh, almost looked like a small uh, golden statue. And um, because his mother was a bhikkhuni, uh, the king, King Pasenadi, takes over. He, uh, he says, I will rear the child. I will, I will actually raise the child in the royal court. And he does so for about seven years. And he names him Kumara. Kumara also means young boy. And in some cases, it also uh, can mean the young uh, crown prince. Sometimes that's how it, it, is, it was used, Kumara. But at the age of seven, they dress him up in the royal outfit and they send him off to Lord Buddha so that he could become ordained. Uh, the commentaries don't say, but you can you know, read between the lines and see how that must have been the wish of the mother. But also the child had demonstrated certain features, certain aspirations, shall we say at that young age, just like Dabba had done um, earlier that we had seen a few weeks ago. So, uh, and then the commentaries say that he was also called Kumara because Lord Buddha, sometimes he would get bananas and fruits and things in his uh, Pindapada. So, you know, small knickknacks and he would send those knickknacks to Kumara. Send it to the young boy, he would say, take this to the young boy. So that also stuck. So um, this sutta happens at the time when uh, now Venerable Kumara Kassapa is staying in the Andhavana, which is the uh, dark forest, it's called dark forest uh, monastery um, or Kuti, if you will, which is not so far from Jetavana. And that's where the Brahma Anagamin, uh, old friend of his, shows up. He doesn't know that it's his old friend, by the way. He just sees a brilliant, luminous presence of a deva who is asking him these riddles. Uh, as far as the bhikkhuni, the mother of Kumara Kassapa, I'd like to uh, share with you this bit of information about her. Um, she also advanced very well in her practice. And eventually she also attained um, arahantship, but uh, they say that she had wept uh, for about, um, I believe, 12 years because she couldn't be with her child. Um, and uh, there's a beautiful story behind this part of, of, of her relationship with her son, Venerable Kumara Kassapa, where one time she is on Pindapada in the village 
And she, by chance, uh, runs across, sees her son, Venable Kumara now the adult. And uh, she's so uh, filled up with emotion and affection for her only child, even though she's a bhikkhuni and he's a bhikkhu. Um, she leaves everything and rushes to him, towards him, but she accidentally trips and she falls. When she falls, um, they say that um, it's, it's a very moving story at that part where she falls, as she falls, her breasts release milk and it shows up through her robes. Uh, so Venerable Kumara Kassapa sees this and realizes what's happening. And with full of compassion, he says, okay, there's, there's something that I need to be doing here to help my mother uh, because she's so close. So he kind of scolds her, interestingly enough. So he plays that trick on her so to kind of distance her from that sense of attachment, of the desire or the delight of being a mother. He's my son. I have so much love for him. So that shocks her enough to really ponder what took place and the significance of her love for her son. And before the sun sets, that day, that very day, she becomes an arahant. So I wanted to uh, share that with you uh, prior to beginning the sutta. So again, this is the Bhammika Sutta. Um, I finished translating it this week. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's an extensive sutta and uh, it's a wonderful one because it allows us to see the different nuances of the Dhamma and hopefully find ourselves in our specific um, track or position within, the, uh, within our progress, shall we say, in the path. Uh, in various stages of these uh, riddles that will be presented uh, uh, now. So it's uh, Vamika Sutta, which comes from the Majjhimilikaya, and it, uh, Vamika is loosely translated as the simile of the anthill. So here we go. I have personally heard this. Uh, in Pali, it's evam me sutam. And whenever we hear this, whenever we read this, it is Venerable Ananda that is saying this. He's recounting this. And when is he recounting it? He is recounting it in the first council that took place about three months after the Buddha died, where they gathered, oh, 500 Arahants gathered in a cave in Rajika, and uh, that's where they recited so that they could codify the suttas and the Dhamma in a proper way. So he was recounting sutta after sutta for months. So that's who is the reciter, shall we say. I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anata Pindika at Jeta's Park in the city of Savati. It was during that time that the Venerable Kumara Kassapa was living in the dark forest. Then, when the night was already beginning to wane, a certain deva illuminated the entire dark forest, and by approaching the Venerable Kumara Kassapa, came and stood to one side and said, 
Bikku, Bikku. This anthill keeps fuming at night and blazes in the day. Meanwhile, the Brahmin keeps encouraging. Oh, wise one, take up a sharp tool and dig. Here, when, when uh, the sutta starts with bhikkhu, bhikkhu, it's, it's used almost like an interjection. It's like when there's an alarm. Uh, it's like, fire, fire, uh, watch out, there's a snake. You know, that's, that's that sudden element of, 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 of uh, interjection being brought in. Bhikkhu, bhikkhu, watch out. So it continues, the, the, the riddle. Digging with the sharp tool, one sees a door bolt obstructing the way. Bhante, I see a door bolt obstructing the way. The Brahmin spurs him on by saying, get rid of the door bolt obstructing the way and keep digging with the sharp tool, O wise one. In India, while visiting uh, old castles, I um, saw old, uh, old doors and, and, and um, small and large, and I've seen uh, some palace gates, uh, like Mughal empires, especially that era, uh, especially if in, in regions like Jaipur, if you ever uh, have gone or uh, would go. Um, something interesting, um, is, is noticeable other than the wear and tear of, of the centuries that have passed. The wood around the, the, these thick uh, gates, doors, although it's weathered and eroded, you can still see the copper plating. And sometimes you can also see if they've tried to invade the city gates. So there's like spear marks and, and things. Uh, but something else I noticed there were these bolts, uh, metal. I don't know what kind of metal, probably they were copper or bronze or iron, I don't know, but it didn't look rusty. So they were still there, even though the, the whole gate or part of the gate had completely come off the hinges after centuries. So, the, board, the, the, the bolt itself, the door bolt, protected from the inside. It closed. It doesn't allow something to come in. And um, before I go into it, I, I, would, I, I wish to have Lord Buddha give the descriptions uh, before I, I, I dig in. But... Uh, a person gets to be locked inside when these bolts, these door bolts are put into place. And as far as the Dhamma is concerned, it uh, doesn't allow the person to see the light of the Dhamma, if you will. And two specific individuals come to mind. Siddhartha Gautamas, prior to Lord Buddha's awakening, his former teachers, Alara Kalama and Uddhakarama Putta. When Lord Buddha became enlightened and he finally decided to teach, the first individual he thought of were these individuals, were these two teachers. However, they had both died, one seven days prior and the other one that same night. 
earlier. So in this case, these two teachers had been bolted. We can look at it that way because they never will be able to hear Lord Buddha's dispensation because once one a person is reborn in those higher realms, whether it's the realm of nothingness or realm of neither perception nor non-perception, it's such a vast, long time period that many sasanas can come and go. And uh, their former student, they won't ever be able to hear him or his sasana uh, at any point. So it's it's a it can be very detrimental, if not devastating, this image of a door, door bolt, rather, an obstacle. So continuing on. Digging with the sharp tool, one sees a toad that swells up when touched. Bunte, I see a toad that swells up when touched. The Brahmin presses him on by saying, Get rid of the toad that swells up when touched, that's in the way, and keep digging with the sharp tool, O oh wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a forked path. Bunte, I see a forked path, basically a junction. The Brahmin says to him encouragingly, ignore the forked path and keep digging with the sharp tool, O oh wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a water strainer. Bhante, I see a water strainer. The Brahmin tells him, get rid of the water strainer and keep digging with the sharp tool, O oh wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a tortoise. Bhante, I see a tortoise. The Brahmin instructs him further by saying, Get rid of the tortoise and keep digging with the sharp tool, O oh wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a cleaver with a chopping board. Bhante, I see a cleaver with a chopping board. And the Brahmin tells him, get rid of the cleaver with the chopping board and keep digging with the sharp tool, O oh wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a piece of flesh. Bhante, I see a piece of flesh. And the Brahmin directs him by saying, get rid of the piece of flesh and keep digging with the sharp tool, O wise one. Digging with the sharp tool, he sees a Naga. Bhante, I see a Naga. And the Brahmin says, leave the Naga in peace. Do not harm the Naga. Venerate the Naga. And the Deva continued by saying, Bhikkhu, go and approach the Blessed One and ask him about the meaning of this riddle. And however he explains it, you must bear it in mind and remember it well. After all, Bhikkhu, in this world of Devas and humans, together with its Maras, Brahmas, and the community of recluses and Brahmins, I do not see anyone who is capable of explaining the meaning of this riddle and satisfying the mind, except for the Tathagata, or a disciple of the Tathagata, or someone who has heard it from them. Having finished saying these words, the deity vanished from the dark forest. 
With the night having already ended, at dawn, the venerable Kumara Kassapa approached the Blessed One, and after paying homage to him, sat to one side and recounted to the Blessed One the entire conversation that had taken place earlier between the Deva and himself, while adding, Bhante, what is the anthill? What does it mean when it fumes at night? What is meant by blazing in the day? Who is the Brahmin and who is the wise one? What is the sharp tool? What is meant by digging? What is the door bolt obstructing the way? What is the toad that swells up when touched? What is the forked path? What is the water strainer? What is a tortoise? What is the cleaver with the chopping board? What is the piece of flesh? And who is the naga? Here, the Blessed One began by explaining. Bhikkhu, the anthill is a simile for this body made up of the four primary elements brought forth by a mother and father, nourished by rice and bread, and subject to impermanence, as it wears away, breaking down and destroyed at the end of one's life. Being compared to a uh, anthill or termite mound, um, we see, as Lord Buddha is saying, that this body of ours is the same as an anthill. It has many holes. The anthill, if you've ever seen it on Discovery Channel or you've actually seen them in person, they have so many holes and there's all kinds of creepy crawlies coming in and out of them. Uh, they're almost intimidating because you don't know what to expect, what to find within it. Sometimes they're, the holes are big or small as, um, you know, as the case is with our human body. We have holes for the eyes holes for the ears, the nostrils, the mouth. Um, and I believe they said that within a square inch of human skin, an adult average human being, there's about 2000 holes and pores basically in one square inch. So we're like, we're like a sponge. We're like a sieve. We're like, you know, we have so many holes in us. But, you know, obviously these holes, the pores especially, are very small and they're covered up for now. And um, we don't get so easily uh, shocked by them because everyone, everyone else has them as well, right? Especially when a person is on the younger part of the spectrum of, of, of human life. So here we have the Brahma God pointing out how um, if we were to see with insight these pores, then one may develop this sense of not being so infatuated with the body to disengage that level of obsession with the body, if you will, that takes so much of our life, so much of our time, so much of our attention just an image of an anthill. Lord Buddha continues. 
whatever is done during the day is thought and pondered upon at night. This is the meaning of fuming at night. Whatever is thought and pondered upon during the night is later put into action the following day through behaviors committed by the body, spoken by words and thought about further by the mind, is the blazing in the day. In those ancient times, um, people engaged in work primarily during daytime. So very few people worked at night uh, in those uh, time periods of human uh, you know, culture. Uh, but today we have so much greed, we have so much, well, I have to get this, I have to have this, and uh, people are so engaged in the field of, of business, uh, enhancing one's wealth, etc. cetera. Uh, so the time scale has expanded what is acceptable as far as work. Um, there's times where I used to do overtime, uh, like many, many people, uh, probably some of you, um, and to, to make ends meet or to get to a financial goal per se, or if you're in the stock market, what is time for you? You're always, you know, one coast starts earlier or another part of the world. So that didn't happen in those days. However, people still dwelt on what had taken place during the day, dwelling on it at night, fuming at night. The anthill still fumes at night. Um, it happens a lot with um, uh, individuals in therapy, for example, uh, when a person comes in and says, or anyone, I have so much anxiety, I can't get this thing out of my head, or somebody said this mean thing to me, and I didn't deserve it. And I should have said this to him, and guess what? They didn't. And they have spent all night without a wink, thinking how they should have had a better comeback than just sitting there quietly. That is fuming by night. So, um, also, uh, an interesting side note, when I used to work in New York um, years ago in the 90s, early 90s, um, one time I was looking outside the window and I was seeing so many people rushing, rushing, rushing. And we were talking and I just jokingly asked, like, where are these people rushing to? And one of the salespeople said, well, it all started with overnight delivery and the fax machine. So this was an interesting eye-opener for me. So I don't know if it's absolutely valid, but uh, that made sense to me. But nowadays we're living at far more demanding, um, in, a, in a far more demanding time period where we need to exercise extra um, awareness, mindfulness of what is taking place. Otherwise, it is having a drastic or detrimental impact on how we perform the following day, which is the blazing by day. So there is no relief. The person is always being pushed left and right, slapped around by all these things. So the anthill 
another word for vammika, which is the Pali word for uh, anthill, is uh, it comes from the root vamati, which is um, to vomit. Perhaps the English word, it's after all the same, you know, uh, Indo-European languages. So vomit, perhaps, I'm not a linguist. So perhaps there is a connection there with the Pali or Sanskrit word for it, vamati, which is to vomit. Um, so the anthill vomits, spews out all kinds of stuff. Uh, it spews out, uh, I know Mahasi Sayadaw in his description of it would say um, snakes come out of it, uh, scorpions, uh, ants, obviously, termites, um, you know, creepy crawlies and, and the things that slither and, and all that. So similarly with the body, we have earwax coming out. We have other stuff, gooey stuff, substances coming out of the nostrils, the eyes. Uh, by the way, this is not, uh, you know, this sutta, as you can tell, is not looking at the body in, in, in a glorious way, you know. Um, so it is allowing us to get a different glimpse of the body, to disconnect us from being so enchanted, uh, floored by it, if you will, uh, enthralled by it. So, and there's nothing uh, derogatory. These are just simple facts that we all can attest to, witness, and all these liquids and things coming out of the body, therefore, is um, being reflected in the fact that anthills do the same thing. So let's continue. The Brahmin is a simile for the Tathagata, the Arahant, the perfectly self-awakened one, Whereas the term for the wise one is used to signify the disciple in higher training. Usually, Lord Buddha is uh, depicted as Brahmin throughout many, many suttas, as well as uh, uh, he uses the word Brahmin as a noble person to uh, symbolize, to stand for the Arahant. And this is in sharp contrast to how the term Brahmin was accepted in that culture of India, to this day, in fact, where it is by birth that a person can become noble, i.e. a Brahmin. Meanwhile, the Buddha was saying, no, 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 no. It is one's own actions, one's own choices within the actions themselves that make a person noble or not. And the epitome of that is Lord Buddha as the Brahmin, capital B. Now, as far as the uh, wise one at the end of each of these riddles, as we see, keep digging, keep digging. Now we know it's Lord Buddha, who's the Brahmin, who's, who's pushing the student higher, uh, the disciple in higher training. Oh, wise one, keep digging, keep digging, push this thing away and keep digging. Who is this wise one? Uh, refers basically to the well-educated pupil, the well-rounded, the, the one with, who has proven oneself to the teacher, having the outstanding ability to persevere, to withstand whatever instructions the teacher gives, and doesn't entertain any ideas of, well, I don't think that's right. You know, I'm not going to listen to you on this one. You were fine up until this point, but I'm not going to follow you up. That is not the wise one. 
and here there is an encouragement on the part of the riddle and especially Lord Buddha in um, having certain expectations of the disciple in higher training. One cannot be laxed, one cannot behave as they behaved previously before becoming a noble and they can't, um, you know, as they go higher in the, in the progress, in the training, they cannot afford not to be. Um, so the term in Pali is sumedha, sumedha, which is uh, the one with um, well-rounded wisdom and an outstanding ability uh, to understand uh, the Dhamma. So, and obviously someone who's also been trained in meditation, specifically in wisdom, in insight meditation, um, um, where mindfulness itself becomes a, a, a protection for this person. So they're working towards more and more, further and further, deeper and deeper into developing Mahasati, Supreme Sati, where mindfulness is, they're drenched in it. Everything they touched, they touch is touched by mindfulness. So that's when mindfulness itself can become uh, a protection, as it says in the Anguttara Nikaya. So, uh, Lord Buddha continues, the sharp tool is a simile for noble wisdom. Digging is the simile for maintaining aroused mindful energy. So the sharp tool, or sometimes some translators have used the term ho, uh, something that will uh, cut through the ground, is um, a metaphor for the knowledge, or simile, for the knowledge that pierces through the um, sticky dirt of um, perpetually dwelling on memories, on concepts, on notions, on expectations. And as the person is, is, is using it more and more, the sharp tool, they are developing and they're trusting more the awareness of whatever is taking place now, underlined now, irrespective of what's in front of them or what they might be surprised by, as we will find out. So uh, digging repeatedly, on the other hand, is, is uh, as Lord Buddha mentions, it is in reference to the relentless effort without a break, without a break. We don't take a time out. We don't go on a vacation. Um, as a relaxation or as a timeout from being mindful. So digging repeatedly signifies applying unremitting energy, something that is nonstop, that is continuous effort, despite the objections that come up and the obstructions that come up objections from your mind. Uh, we'll see later on uh, how doubt can uh, come in. So um, the person is ceaselessly paying attention with whatever is taking place. Irrespective of what the sanyas or perceptions are saying, whatever is being encountering, encountering basically as they are digging through the dirt. So in order for it to be effective, however, um, just like we need to hold the hoe or the sharp object with intent and deliberate uh, attention, so too we must apply 
uh, a firm grasp on the act of being mindful. So we're not blasé or in a very relaxed way. Yes, yes, I'm being aware, like you new agey type of a thing. That's not mindfulness that we talk about. That takes us to wisdom. It's leaving oneself out. It's staying sharp. It's not adding our own filters or screens or veils of interpretation as to what is taking place, but just developing more and more pure and pure and purer attitude towards seeing what is happening. If I'm touching something cold or hot, am I allowing the mind to kind of drift away into the Sankara, La La Land? into the story-making land or into the sanya land or memory albums of the past. So it involves care. It involves unrelenting effort on the part of the meditator. And this is crucial because when we are holding the hoe or the sharp object with so much uh, precision and intention, what we're doing is we're basically saying goodbye to laziness and weakness. What I've noticed with students and sometimes fellow meditators is that we become very complacent and we start celebrating or you know, being joyous about our old laurels of, of, of experiences we've had in the past. Things that have occurred, yes, yes. And, and then presuming that we are still there if they were still, I mean, even genuine. So uh, this is also grounds for falling back, regressing, and there is such a thing. So, uh, and that's why we need to stay sharp until you become an arahant. Even if a person becomes a sotapanna, it's like, okay, I'm not going to be like celebrating. Okay, come on, chop, chop, we got work to do. Because a person can become complacent. And I have seen quite a number of people who have become complacent, as if that was a different lifetime lifetime altogether. So uh, being vigilant, therefore, is, um, is extremely important in uh, vigilant in paying attention to one's thoughts, speech, and action. This is crucial. After all, if it's a disciple in higher training, that person, as they move up, uh, as they get close to anagami or beyond, they are developing adisila. Adisila means the higher, the supreme form of sila, which is not just mere rites and ritual type of following the precepts. Oh, I, I, I followed, the, let's say in my case, 227 rules. You don't need to anymore follow them like that because you are always on it always on it. When Ajahn Man was once questioned by a, a person, a lay person, uh, they said, Ajahn Longpo, you, uh, we have heard about you only practicing one rule. Is that true? And Ajahn Man said, yes. What is that, uh, what is that rule that you follow? In, not the 227. Look where they were coming from. And this great Arahant, of the 20th century said, I practice the most important rule of all. I practice discipline of the mind. You get that right. 
the 227 fall in line. There's no way you can break any of the rules. It's impossible. But this doesn't happen overnight. This happens with the diligence and the practice of uh, Mahasati that stays with you. So on the outside, the bhikkhu might live or might say or might do things that might not necessarily agree even. I'm not saying that's a rule, but that's the, that's the guide. But one needs to look at the whole picture, stay with them, spend time with them, test them, see, investigate, and not be slave to the written word because they have become the embodiment of the Dhamma, the embodiment of the Vinaya, as the case was with Ajahn Man. And he's not the only one, of course. So um, Sila is very important there in holding of this hoe or the sharp tool. And uh, this also reflects back to the right effort and right effort has four aspects to it, let's not forget. One is the uh, prevention of unwholesome, um, unarisen uh, thoughts, words, actions from taking place. The second part of the right effort is the elimination, the eradication of whatever uh, unwholesome states or words, etc., cetera, uh, tendencies um, have already arisen. And on the other polarity, we have the cultivation, the development of wholesome, unarisen tendencies to be coming to the foreground, to, the, to, to, to appear in one's life, to manifest. And then finally, the fourth aspect of right effort is the maintenance and the promotion of further and further of wholesome uh, states of mind and practice behavior to take place. Um, so this also needs to be brought into the holding of the hoe in a tight, deliberate manner. Uh, so it's not like, because as I mentioned in previous talks, if we hold the hoe or the sharp object in a loose manner, there is a great chance that we would injure ourselves if not kill ourselves. Years ago, my, when my father, uh, when he was alive, he used to be a barber. And I would see how he would use the blade, the shaving blade, the one that you would have to sharpen yourself without extra, you know, cartridges. And I would just like, wow, there's no way I would ever be able to do that, dad. I was a young kid. And then when I first finally, finally, I was, I had some hair on my face. And so I wanted it to be like ceremonious to so this and that. So finally I went to him and he shaved it and I was terrified but I trusted him. But his hand was so like disciplined. There's no way he was gonna let any blood come out, any cut happen other than the intended ones. And my face felt like, like a baby's skin at the end. But it was like, I was just mesmerized the way he was moving it. He could not afford to be absent-minded there especially when he's going over like underneath the chin next to the carotid artery and things. If we're like that with this body, this anthill, which is not as, as, as dangerous as the mind, why shouldn't we be that diligent and that precise with the mind being on point? 
So this is an encouragement for us by the Buddha to teach us to be uh, much more aware with our attention when we're applying mindfulness. Am I fully there or not? Let's continue. Bhikkhu, the door bolt obstructing the way is a simile for ignorance. Get rid of the door bolt obstructing the way and keep digging with the sharp tool. Oh, wise one means dispel and abandon ignorance and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. So in the course of the digging process, the first obstacle uh, we see is, is, is this bolt. You know, some the translators have used bar. Um, I had a tough time. That's why I had to redo this thing. Um, because a door bolt, if you remember that, that image uh, that I shared with you earlier of, a, of, a, of this bolt that people put not just in India, of course, uh, you see it sometimes not, it doesn't have to be metal too. In old castles, they would have this huge, almost like a tree trunk type of a huge thing that they had to move with several people and slide it in place uh, behind the gates. So that is what this riddle is presenting. So the bolt, the obstruction that ignorance, uh, ignorance presents is what needs to be looked at very carefully and be removed that's what the Brahmin says. That's what Lord Buddha is saying. Remove it and keep digging. Remove it. So, um, so uh, but, but interestingly enough, the student here, it doesn't say so in the, in the sutta, but if we were, be, if you were transported there and you're the student and we're, we're the student and we're looking and, you know, the fuming by day or night, and that's the first thing you see. Immediately you go hold it and say, teacher, teacher, I got the cause for the fuming. This is it. And the teacher says, no, 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 throw that away. Keep digging. That's not it. That's not it. During interviews, sometimes it happens where a student comes in and, and they report and uh, they have to answer certain questions as to for the teacher to see where they are in their progress. Sometimes um, uh, students would feel so disappointed because they come in and they're like wanting a certain answer. And they almost walk away with the head hanging. It's like defeated almost. And it's almost like that, you know, the student saying, you know, this is it, this is it. And it's like, no, 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 keep digging. So uh, it's an encouragement. <laughs> so um, let's move on. Um, something that I wanted to also mention here in regards to the bolt uh, and being an obstruction um, for wisdom, representing ignorance itself. Um, the Buddha gave us, the compassionate great teacher gave us the Dhamma. In a way, he removed the bolt for us. In many ways, in fact. But sometimes we think that that's enough. He's done it, so we should celebrate Vesak. We should pour some water on the baby Buddha statue thingy, thing like that. And that's, you know, chant a little bit of uh, suttas or parittas here and there and practice a little bit of meditation. We're good to go. No, we have the Dhamma still. 
that can be equivalent to the first bolt being pulled out. And that was something that only a Buddha can to bring Dhamma at a time period, to reveal the Dhamma at a time period where there's none left. Now we still have it. So, but the main bolt that here is being referred to, pointed at, is the bolt that we have. So the second part of this removal is up to us. So that's why we need to keep digging, irrespective of what shows up. Um, and for that reason, we need to still be exposed to the suttas, the Dhamma. We need to still practice the Vinaya, of course, and be diligent in our practice. Because there would be things here and there that we might have skipped or not noticed. Listening to Dhamma talks from different teachers, for example, is really helpful. Uh, as long as they're you know, legitimately going back to the source of Pali Canon. So uh, next we see Lord Buddha explain. Bhikkhu, the toad that swells up when touched is a simile for anger and confusion. Get rid of the toad that swells up when touched and keep digging with the sharp tool. Oh, wise one means let go of anger and confusion and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. So here we have a toad, a frog, uh, for lack of a better word, um, that every time it's touched, it gets triggered. It becomes something other than what it was. The size definitely changes. And perhaps it also becomes very menacing, especially when we see the, uh, the description of Lord Buddha as this toad representing anger and confusion, basically an agitated mind, an agitated mind. So we have come across many people in our lives, perhaps ourselves, where we might see that person be so calm and collected and so patient, if you will. But something is said, something is exchanged, a word, an insult, and all of a sudden they become, you know, a situation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Suddenly. And um, this, is, this is dangerous um, in a person, especially on the path. Sometimes I see this a lot, um, and uh, but as as a teacher, sometimes you confront. Sometimes it's much better to say it indirectly, and sometimes you just let the students uh, realize it on their own if they're not ready to accept. Otherwise, they will get even more agitated. Uh, Mahasi Sayadaw gives a beautiful explanation for this part of the toad, where it just swells up bellows up when it when it's touched and he uh, tells the story of two bhikkhus once and they were um, um, they had gone to that it was that time for them to go ahead and and shower uh, so they were in a pond or a lake somewhere so one of them uh gets out first and and hides the slippers of the other bhikkhu so he hides them and, you know, he's, he's trying to make a funny joke, this and that. And uh, I guess goes back into the water or puts his clothes on and robes on. Now, the other one gets out of the water and he's looking for his slippers. Now, obviously, there's nobody else who has taken the slippers. He knows that. 
But he doesn't ask him. He says, hmm, he plays a trick. He says, hmm, I wonder what kind of a dog came and stole my slippers. A dog. Guess what that word does to the other bhikkhu? He gets infuriated. He reaches over and grabs hold of a rock or, or a brick, something like that, you know, heavy object, and throws it at the head of his fellow monk, killing him on the spot. Um, of course, he's arrested and taken into custody and, and, and you know, served, I guess, for his crime. But look how a moment of playfulness changed. You know, sometimes I've seen people uh, approach bhikkhus uh, and they're very, very like, you know, respectful on the outside. You know, bante, bante, bante. And um, the bante uh, might say something and all of a sudden you could see the facial complexion change. Redness comes in, the eyes start to squint and the teeth get, you know, you see it, the body language. And the responses turn from being so sweet and so honey-like into something so bitter. And um, so we need to be very, very watchful of this toad that gets aggravated from a slightest touch, slightest insult. And um, on the in, uh, linguistic part of the toad, in some commentaries they've actually, uh, that they had done, completed in Sri Lanka, they haven't used the word toad. Um, they used a term uh, in Pali, I forgot the name of it, but basically it is the name for a toenail. Uh, a toenail. And a toenail is, is you know, it's not that big, but toads, if you're in, let's say, Australia or in Fiji or you know, in Hawaii, you see bigger toes, like huge, much bigger than a toenail. So um, that I found to be interesting in my research of the sutta, because Lord Buddha also, there was a caveat in the suttas where Lord Buddha says, um, uh, the Dhamma, when it reaches the shores of a certain culture, a certain civilization or a country, um, people can use the terminology that fits that certain country or district. And um, therefore, one term should not be viewed as the correct term. And um, it is in the uh, Majjhima Nikaya uh, 139, where he mentions this. So, Arana um, Vibhanga Sutta. So, in, in, in addressing the toad situation where it swells up, oftentimes we ignore the importance of sanya in this. Sanya is the thing, perceptions, notions, concepts, expectations I added last time, um, memories. Um, they're, the, at, they're at the root of our likes and dislikes expectations, just like that example of a student saying, Bhante, Bhante, yes, yes, Bhante, yes, 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 like this, hands together, yes. Um, but there's an expectation to that. 
there's a certain narrative playing in the mind of this person because the moment something else is introduced, that whole narrative comes crashing down. Well, how did this come up? Sonia. Another word for Sonia here would be narrative as well. The way we like to interpret, hence, have a strong position for or against. I'm expecting this, not that. So, um, and we have many examples in the suttas of um, individuals who present one thing, but they're totally uh, deep down. Another example is uh, Lady Videhika and her uh, servant slash maid, uh, Kali, who tests her on her patience because she had a reputation for being the kindest, the gentlest, the most compassionate mistress, uh, lady. And uh, Kali conjures up an idea. And she's like, you know, I'm going to test her, see if she's all that. So she decides one day to wake up a little bit late, the next morning, a little bit later, a little bit later, until she wakes up like in the afternoon. Meanwhile, she, you know, Vedehika, the lady, gets so frustrated with her. Eventually, there's this crescendo that's building up and her tone changes and finally she just grabs hold of a stick and she starts beating her until blood comes out of Kali's head. And she runs out into the, uh, into the street and says, here's your lady Videhika, the compassionate, the kind, this and that. Look, 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 there's blood. Simply because I got up late. So uh, examples are useful to uh, be aware of and bring it to your life. So. Bhikkhu, a forked path is a simile for having doubts in the heart. Ignore the forked path and keep digging with the sharp tool, O wise one, means push through those doubts and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. Uh, a forked uh, path on the road in our spiritual path is, is bound to happen sooner or later bound to happen. And that's actually part of the process. Uh, oftentimes we might have the expectation, the Sanya again, of having the path be kind of like smooth sailing without any zigzag, any, any hurdles, no boulders on the road, no obstacles. But there's so much to be learned from that about ourselves. And the more difficulties we have, uh, my experience has been uh, to indicate the more areas in my own path that I have to work on and develop. And that is what I try to share with others. Um, so we're going to be overwhelmed by stressors at times to the point where it might uh, bring out a sense of uh, skeptical or skepticism or skeptical doubt in the mind. And sometimes people have asked me, uh, especially in the case of those who have seen the Dhamma, uh, Sotapanna, and up, they would uh, sometimes have the question, um, Bhante, why do I have some doubt about this or that? So there's a slight confusion there, which can be a major hindrance on the path if dwelled on too much. And uh, my response usually is, um, 
that the doubt that gets to be eradicated is toward in the stage of sotapanna, the first stage of awakening, even at the Magga level, is in regards to having other paths there for you other than the Dhamma as potential candidates, if you will. That goes out the window. The viewing of rites and rituals as something that can take a person to awakening, that also goes out the window. But there are still quirks that we might have in our behavior on the path. That's okay. Every once in a while, we will have doubt about this or that part of the practice. Uh, one of the arahants, Ajahn Mahabhu, I used to say, unless you've reached the arahantship, you're going to have some level of uncertainty. Deal with it. So, but that doesn't mean that we need to pack up and just forget about this path simply because I have a doubt in me. So um, that's something that needs to be uh, pondered upon carefully. And um, as we are pushing through the doubt, um, I need to add the, the importance of upekka in there. Upekka, which is equanimity. Because there's, when there is doubt, there is a strong presence of the kileshas. We don't just take doubt as a hindrance, as an ivarana, but it also represents the very, very quiet, but very present um, or presence of the three defilements, lust, hatred, and delusion, all of which create confusion. Confusion. Now, someone might ask, uh, Bhante, is it necessary to go through all these, uh, these, these uh, riddles one after the other? And um, I would say probably not. However, as we all know in our practice, sometimes overcoming one hurdle is not truly uh, um, conquering that and, and really going over that hurdle because there's some elements of it that still pops up. We still will encounter different aspects of that uh, obstacle, hindrance. So we saw earlier the bolt, but doubt itself also has within it ignorance again. So in the riddle or, or the aspect of the, the the problem of, of the presence of the toad, we're also seeing ignorance. So it's not like we got rid of it from the first and this is another. No, they're, they're chained, they're linked up together. And it is the mindfulness in the presence of wisdom that's going to decipher this. So um, that's, um, that's something that I wanted to add. And also doubt can be uh, and usually is, um, as one of the Sayadaws would say, one of the greatest con artists, doubt. Because it can camouflage itself as something that will that is trying to desperately lead us to a higher level of discernment. Discernment. It can also be a, a, a self-doubt, doubting our own understanding of the Dhamma where we need to validate it constantly by going and researching this and that and doing that and 
reading as much on it in order for me to go and say, okay, now I think I'm okay. That's also on the foundation of doubt, which creates agitation in the mind again. That's why when doubt is removed, the face relaxes, the body relaxes. Kayang pasambati, iti kayang pasambati. There's joy that arises in the mind and the body relaxes. But joy cannot arise in the mind if the mind is strewn with, drenched with doubt. Whether towards oneself, the teacher, the Dhamma, the great teacher, doesn't matter. So, um, Bhikkhu, the water strainer, is a simile for the five hindrances, which are sensual lust, hatred or anger, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and skeptical doubt. Get rid of the water strainer. Keep digging with the sharp tool, O wise one, means abandon the five hindrances and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. Um, The water strainer, obviously, because it's part of the riddle, is also depicting another obstacle on the path. And now we see the Lord Buddha is using it as a simile or explaining it as uh, meaning or standing for the five hindrances, which again, we just covered doubt, which is again, as you saw, part of the five hindrances, which is vichikicca. Um, it's, it's a water strainer is a gauze, is, is like a very fine cloth, think of it. In those days, uh, you would use a cloth. As, as a bhikkhu, you have to strain the water to drink it. But also people would use it to, to uh, strain gold. And um, so that can be used here as, as, as a reminder. Because oftentimes what is valuable is going to be the thing that uh, gets strained out, meaning flows out of the strainer the water. And, um, and here the commentaries specifically mention how this is a warning for us to be uh, using the water strainer as, um, as a tool that um, permits wholesome deeds to flow out of it. Permits wholesome deeds to flow out of it. And um, therefore, the merits of it are gone. Um, and uh, again, this brings us back to, uh, refers back to the um, establishing of mindfulness and uh, constant awareness of one's, um, well, mental functions, of course, but in relation to the five hindrances that are always happening. There was a time when I, uh, whenever I sat to meditate, I would think uh, that the hindrances would show up only then while sitting, and especially while on retreat. That's a delusion right there, right? Because they're everywhere in one's life. They're everywhere. Um, Last night, for example, um, uh, one of the neighbors here uh, decided to um, 
you know, start to shower or wash something at 3 a.m. loudly. And it's, it's like almost like they're in your room. That's how loud. So you wake up when you can't fall asleep. Uh, so earplugs don't help. So what do you do? Well, guess what? The hindrances are right there. How come they're doing this? Aren't they considered, aren't they this? You know, meanwhile, hatred is building up. Confusion. I don't like this is building up. If things are left the way they are, the hindrances will take over. And then Sati can sit there and observe all of this happening, taking place. So the hindrances are always there. Um, and this is where we need to be extremely, you know, holding that hoe, that, that sharp object very tightly when the hindrances come at us. We cannot afford to be loose at that, at those moments. Um, so, and, and when we're holding the, the hoe, remember, uh, Lord Buddha described it as the sharp object, as the presence of discernment, as, as constant knowledge, a, a application of what we have learned. Uh, this is Panya, part of the three trainings. The first is Sila, second is Samadhi, the third is Panya. Panya has to be there because oftentimes the tricks that we've learned in meditation might not be sufficient to deal with some heavy-duty visit of the hindrances. We need to apply wisdom. There's the object, the noise. There's the subject, the mind perceiving it. And you have a story right there. Because then there will be the grasping of how could they do this? How could they? I have to get up early in the morning. I have to do this. I have to do this. How can I actually be in top all this? Is Sanya. But what is genuinely there is the fact that there is hearing taking place. There's the ear organ and there is the sound as the object of it. Like Lord Buddha said to Bahia, in hearing, there is just hearing. That is application of wisdom of Panya. And you don't have to delve into too much Dhamma, too much analysis. So uh, Lord Buddha says, discard the water strainer and reject the five hindrances. Uh, and and if sensual pleasures dominate the mind, uh, then there's no Samadhi in the mind. And it's so hard to gain it back uh, because it's already agitated and confused. So we need to be very careful with, with uh, um, what we are uh, allowing in to our awareness. Uh, so we need to be on guard. That's why uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya earlier, I was mentioning how mindfulness is a great protection. Protection from what? From the damage caused by hindrances they do quite a bit of damage, as you well know. And it's so hard to come back on the saddle, to get back on the saddle of, of practice. So, um, and 
I also wanted to mention about the uh, the fish. Uh, fish live in um, in water. You remove the fish from the water and it starts flapping around left and right. Exactly what happens to most of us when we go on a retreat, especially the first time. We feel so out of place. This is so wrong. I need to, where's the exit? Where's my phone? I need to get out. This is unusual. Or when we just sit to meditate. Because obviously from one person to the next, it makes difference as far as how much paramis, how much they have worked on this previously. Um, but essentially, the human being, putujanas especially, uh, find uh, great enjoyment in dwelling in sensual pleasures. Um, that's why the Buddha used that image of, of a fish flapping around when it's when it's uh, um, thrown onto the ground, the dry land. Um, and this is something that many of the bhikkhus used to uh, used to face um, when Lord Buddha said, would say, "Go into seclusion." He would give them an object of meditation, but go into meditation. That's where you need to practice. It's not about the Dhamma, 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 always. You take a little bit of Dhamma and you go ahead and, and taste it. Because otherwise it can easily turn into a hindrance itself, in fact, into, into sensual delight. So let's continue. Bhikkhu, the tortoise is a simile for the five grab, grasping aggregates, which are the grasping aggregate of matter, rupakanda the grasping aggregate of feelings, the grasping aggregate of perceptions, notions or memories, the grasping aggregate of mental concoctions, and the grasping aggregate of sense awareness or consciousness. Get rid of the tortoise and keep digging with the sharp tool, O wise one, means let go and abandon these five grasping aggregates and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. True suffering is found in all beings, uh, especially in, in our case, in human beings, especially now in this world, in this time period. We get to taste suffering through the five aggregates. We need the five aggregates to get to the Dhamma, to the realization of the Dhamma, but not by jumping over Dukkha. This is why a lot of people struggle because they want to negotiate suffering out of the equation so they can have the five aggregates, get as much of the sensual pleasures Minus, minus the dukkha, and attain at the end this supramundane state of arahantship. This is delusion. This is ignorance. This is, however, sadly, what we see in Buddhist circles a lot of times. We need entertainment. We need some type of joy. Remember the fish flapping around dry, on dry land? It needs to go back into the water, as it were, the water of sensual pleasures. So when a student comes and says, Bhante, why are you asking me to sit for an hour? That's too much. That's too much what? That's too much of a separation between me and 
sensual indulgence. Seeing something, even a text, produces dopamine kicks in the mind. Looking at a painting, a drawing, anything becomes more interesting when we are on retreat or when we're meditating. So looking at these five aggregates, Namarupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankhara, and Vijnana. They're also our way to Nibbana though. They're not just our entry point into suffering. Because of them, we will attain Arahantship. That's the only way. We need to use them to get to that. Because otherwise, how will we understand without Sanya? So Sanya is not like something that we need to shun this and that. We need to understand. The application of wisdom is paramount here as always in the Dhamma. So, um, okay. And when we look at the the three declarations of existence, the three, the three characteristics of uh, existence that Lord Buddha talks about, anicca, dukkha, anatta, they can easily turn into something conceptual, some abstractions out there that we need to wrap our minds around, disconnected from this body. But that's not the case. That's not the case. We can start with the breath. We can start with just a body, just looking at the sensations arising and falling, arising and vanishing, arising and vanishing. Inhale and exhale. The sankharas coming up and then disappearing. Usually, many of us take the attack mode. Like I was saying earlier today before we sat, please try not to force the mind to be still. That's not its nature. And every one of us has all kinds of karmic seeds or bijas and, and things that we have done. There's no way we can know how they will manifest, in what form of sankharas they will manifest. Hence, the sankharas keep coming up and they disappear. But the mindfulness that is there to observe this, instead of engaging in a fight, in a battle with them, that is the thing which takes us into understanding, into the discernment part of it, into the panya portion of it. So, uh, bhikkhu, the cleaver with the chopping board is a simile for the five aspects of sensual stimulation, which are forms cognizable by the awareness of the eyes that are enjoyed, are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. Sounds cognizable by the awareness of the ears that are enjoyed are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. Odors cognizable by the awareness of the nose that are enjoyed are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. Flavors cognizable by the awareness of the tongue that are enjoyed are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. 
touches cognizable by the awareness of the body that are enjoyed, are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. And mental objects cognizable by the awareness of the mind that are enjoyed, are pleasurable, agreeable, and which provoke lust to arise in the heart. Get rid of the cleaver and the chopping board and keep digging with the sharp tool. Oh, wise one means abandon the five aspects of sensual stimulation and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. Uh, the cleaver, which is asi in, uh, or asi in, in Pali and the suna, which is the chopping board. Um, sometimes in English, their um, translations, I've seen them in a form of um, one particular comes to mind, um, slaughterhouse. Another one is um, just a chopping board, doesn't include the cleaver. Uh, but you can't have a chopping board without a cleaver. So they go, you know, together. And here, Lord Buddha is talking about specifically in detail what he means by what the riddle means here in connection to the five cords or strands or aspects of uh, sensual pleasures, um, whether they are sights, sounds, smells, odors, uh, tastes, touches, tactile perceptions, and especially the mind, which usually gets to be neglected for some reason. Uh, in, in meditators to, to consider that we extract a lot of pleasure from this. Um, and because it has been talked about so much, the, the other aspects of, uh, uh, of, of sensual pleasures, uh, because the mind can be a sensual pleasure itself, of course, in ideas, concepts. So um, that's something that... Um, even though Lord Buddha is talking about the five here, um, actually, no, he's talking about also the mind, cognizable. Um, earlier, I was mentioning about the role of the Dhamma. Sometimes it is looked at as a support, as um, a source of enjoyment, if you will something that we can uh, get pleasure out of. And that is something that needs quite a bit of wisdom, discernment to be approached with. What I mean by this is it can easy, easily turn into some form of an addiction. Addiction. And we'll see this also in the next part of the riddle. Actually, they're very much, I see them as very much connected. So I just want to quickly read that part and say, uh, and, and go over it uh, together. Uh, Bhikkhu, a piece of flesh is a synonym for obsession and lust. Get rid of the piece of flesh and keep digging with the sharp tool. A wise one means abandon obsession and lust and keep digging with the sharp tool. This is its meaning. So these two riddles, these two portions of the major riddle uh, of the 15 is about our addiction, about our obsession with, whether it's sights, sounds, etc. But the 
the, the riddle itself it uses the example of a flesh. Uh, some time ago, I was describing to you the incident that took place where a, um, a bird, a parrot, in the house of a layperson uh, comes over, flies over as its owner is chopping some meat. And he also happens to be a gem cutter, a diamond cutter. And he had just received a ruby from the king, which he had placed right there on the chopping board. And the bird comes and, and tries to eat the meat, but the meat was gone because they took it away. But what is left is the ruby, which is red. So the bird swallows that and then um, ends up basically the, the arahant who was visiting. They accuse him and then they kill him basically, accusing him of stealing. But the reason why I mentioned that story here is because of the infatuation, this complete obsession that we have with these sense objects. Each of us in varying degrees, of course, but Lord Buddha is warning us to be mindful of the obsession that takes place. And, you know, carnivores love meat. And by carnivores, we don't necessarily just mean lions and humans, um, tigers, bears, wolves, or whatever, bears are omnivores. Um, but um, ants, flies, flies love meat. And obviously birds, vultures, so the human mind is no different than that when it comes to pleasures. Again, we see this playing beautifully with the image, the metaphor of the fish out of water um, that the Buddha gave us earlier. So, but enjoying, um, in, listening to the Dhamma that I was referring to earlier is something that, um, I like to highlight here that I began doing earlier and because it doesn't get to be talked about enough or ever. Uh, we most of the time talk about the other senses, right? There's a, a tremendous uh, value in discussing Dhamma, in sharing Dhamma. That's why um, Kalyana Mittas are extremely important extremely. However, in small doses. So it is dangerous when we do this regularly. Even a few days is too much sometimes, let alone every day. Because it can be addictive. Where it can also be therapeutic, but it can also open the door because there's a lot of discussion, a lot of words being exchanged. And what usually happens is there's a lot of comparing of notes. This is dangerous because the development of the student is something that is the responsibility specifically, other than the individual, uh, the person, uh, also by the teacher. So, but it has to be legitimately left intact. So too many conversations, too many exchanges, too many sharing of notes, well, this is where I am. This is, these are my experiences. These are very dangerous things to be said. We can talk about the Dhamma, we can talk about the suttas, our understanding of the suttas or the Vinaya. These are all wonderful. But again, by leaving enough time in between where we can be secluded, 
even the Arahants, the Arahants, like Venerable Anuruddha, Kimbala, Nandiya, they lived together in the woods. They would only meet every five days to discuss Dhamma for a few hours. But then they had to go off to absorb the Dhamma. But they would never discuss their attainments because that is dangerous for especially those students who have not developed yet. And they will start to pick out things. And next time they're having an interview with the teacher, guess what words are gonna come out? We're human beings after all. We're gonna say certain things that might not be legitimate, might not be true, might not be authentic. So this confuses the mind. And we have to be very, very careful um, when it comes to uh, um, hearing the Dhamma, listening to the Dhamma. And another episode that has happened some years ago, uh, a person showed up one time after uh, or before my talk and um, I wasn't ordained then, I was a lay person. Um, and he said, oh, could you be more entertaining in the Dhamma talk? I said, excuse me? He said, could you be more entertaining? I mean, uh, and he wasn't like a young kid, you know? Um, <laughs> and I listened to the gentleman and with, you know, uh, there might be some value in what he's saying after all. Uh, and I said, what do you mean? And he gave me examples of some teachers out there, Buddhist monks, uh, not gonna name names, uh, that like to tell jokes, make it funny, engaging this and that. And I said, uh, thank you for your uh, suggestion. However, uh, my teacher, Lord Buddha, was never an entertainer, never. So I'm not going to be pretending to be the new Rajneesh out there or the new Osho in order for me to get more listeners by adding more pizzazz color with bells and whistles on the Dhamma. The Dhamma is perfect. It doesn't need my help at all or anyone's to make it brilliant and beautiful. It is perfect. So sometimes our desire for sensual pleasure sneakily passes into our approach towards the Dhamma. This is something that Mara loves, by the way, because in all, for all purposes, intents and purposes, hey, you're just following the Dhamma, you're very respectful and yes, bowing, venerable, venerable Bhante. No, no, authenticity might be lacking. So it needs to be checked and, and uh, some rules have to be kept. So, um, and because they also lead to skeptical doubt. Um, so coming uh, to uh, back to the sutta, uh, bhikkhu, the naga is a synonym for the bhikkhu with contaminants destroyed, the arahant. Therefore, bhikkhu, leave the naga in peace. Do not harm the naga. Venerate and worship the naga. This is its meaning. Um, the Naga, sometimes it's translated as um, dragon in some places, or I like to keep it as Naga. Uh, um, there's a story where while the Lord Buddha was alive, the Naga king comes, approaches Lord Buddha and says, 
You know, we Nagas uh, are, you know, Lord Buddha knows they're very powerful, this and that. Um, he says, we struggle with the five precepts normally. We have a difficulty with the five hindrances normally. But there's some of us who are practicing. There's many of us, but not all of us. The majority does not respect the triple gem. But is there a way that we too can be recipients of the merits that get to be dedicated or shared? Because we don't like to be left out. Because devas get the, the credit, right? When we uh, dedicate merits. And then Lord Buddha says, that is true and it, it will change from this point on. And that's where Lord Buddha includes the Nagas also in the group of uh, when we are making that uh, chanting, let's say, or dedication. But especially Lord Buddha gives them a special accolade or special title or connection to the path. And he says, from now on, the Arahants will also be called Nagas in commemoration of you. And the king of the Nagas is extremely happy about this. And he bows down to Lord Buddha. And uh, so sometimes you would see in this example, in the riddle, you see it clearly. Lord Buddha saying the Naga is the Arahant, not just any Arahant, but Lord Buddha is also an Arahant. But anyone who becomes an Arahant can also be termed as a Naga. Now, interestingly enough, um, any animal that is massive, that is compelling in its presence, including, uh, uh, well, whales and especially elephants in Asia, the royal tuskers are also called nagas. So anyhow, side note. Um, now, if the person gets stuck on the Dhamma, because you can fall in love with the Dhamma, just like Venerable Kumara Kassapa's mother, who was stuck there. They don't say whether she was an anagami or not. What I didn't mention was uh, in the previous riddle portion uh, where there is this obsession or love for something, including as I try to depict uh, to the Dhamma, towards the Dhamma. This is where a lot of individuals who reach the third stage of awakening, meaning anagamis, do not go beyond it. They get stuck because they don't penetrate. And they don't see that Dhamma itself can be a hindrance to them. I mean, their attachment to the Dhamma, not the Dhamma, you know. Uh, so, and once they do see that, then they'll penetrate into the path and fruition of, of um, Arahantship. Uh, otherwise they will be reborn <laughs> at death in the pure abodes, which interestingly enough, ironically enough, is where the Brahma who came in and told him the riddle uh, is um, or was reborn into, and that's where he was coming and assisting his colleagues, uh, former colleagues. Uh, and then the Lord Buddha says, do not disturb nor harm this Naga. The Naga should be revered and worshiped. Um, so when, when uh, the person becomes an arahant, uh, that doesn't mean that they can turn their back on the sasana or whatever, no. Uh, but they live, they have become the triple gem itself. And um, they, 
in everything that they do, um, it's a reverence, it's a veneration of, of Lord Buddha, the teachings, and, and their fellow um, Maha Sangha members. Um, something else uh, that, this is something that I uh, got from um, Venerable uh, late Mahasi Sayadaw. He says, despite the fact that the Blessed One has countless beings who venerate him, both human and non-human, it is only those who have the necessary perfections, paramis, that will have the chance of paying homage to the Buddha. And no, you do not need to be at the presence of an actual living, breathing Buddha in your practice, anywhere, whenever your sati and panya are present. You are venerating. You do not need the outside redundant hands together, uh, bowing down type of a thing. If you feel like it, beautiful, go ahead. But you don't necessarily have to do those things. But just being authentically present there, being pure in your heart, in your chitta, that's when you're venerating because you're present. Uh, to the Lord Buddha's, um, uh, well, you're in his presence, basically. So, uh, and then finally, this is what the Blessed One said, and the Venerable Kumara Kassapa was delighted in listening to the explanation given by the Blessed One. So, so, so. Um, as mentioned earlier, Venerable Kumara Kassapa uh, became an arahant uh, after this because he, again, removed himself from the company of Lord Buddha and went into, again, the forest where he closely adhered to what he had learned, the teachings, the explanations. And from there, he dwelt on the answers that Lord Buddha gave back and forth, back and forth. And as he resided, secluded, he wasn't chit-chatting with buddies, Kalyanamittas even. He was allowing the words of wisdom to sink in. He became an arahant. And he was also um, recognized by Lord Buddha as um, one of the foremost. Uh, Lord Buddha gave 80 foremost bhikkhus and 80 foremost bhikkhunis. Foremost in um, ascetic practices, such as Venerable Mahakasapa. Uh, foremost in wisdom, such as Venerable Sariputta, foremost in psychic abilities like Venerable Mahamogallana, and uh, Venerable, um, even though he didn't get ordained officially, uh, Venerable Bahia, if you remember, Daruchiriya. He was the foremost, according to the Lord Buddha's classification, foremost in getting it the fastest, becoming the Arahant with the shortest discourse, the shortest Dhamma. So here we have Venerable Kumara Kassapa being an etadagga. Etadagga is like foremost in the usage of analogies, metaphors, imagery, because Lord Buddha recognized them as being very versatile in flipping through using different images in such a skillful way that the listeners could understand what Dhamma he was uh, passing on to them, sharing with them. So uh, that is uh, what I would like to uh, share with you today. Um, and I know it's a, it's a long one, but these 
suttas, there's, there's, uh, this is the linkage. There's only one more companion left from the holy life that we haven't seen. That is Sabhya, uh, who also is met by uh, the same Brahma Anagami, and we'll do that next time. Um, and that will complete uh, the order of the seven bhikkhus who had attained Aranship. So I will pause here. I will stop here and uh, get a little bit of water and uh, see. Uh, hopefully you have some questions I will try to address. Please come on in, jump, jump in. I hope it wasn't on mute. Ante, thank you for your talk today. I was interested to hear towards the beginning of your talk, you were talking about Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputta and how they died in the few days before the Buddha uh, became enlightened. And I was the part I was interested about, if I understood you correctly, was that you said they weren't going to be able to, in the Buddha's dispensation, to hear his teachings. Now, I understand that uh, or I've been told that while the Buddha was giving some of his teachings, there appeared a host of devas around came and also listened to the talk. And also the Buddha went to the deva realms and gave talks while he was there. So I'm wondering why Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputra weren't going to be able to hear the Buddha's teachings when devas could do that. Were they in a realm of nothingness or something? Or what, what was it that prevented them hearing the Buddha further? Good question. Um, they were beyond the Deva realms. They were actually in the formless realms, um, uh, specifically the highest two realms, the realm of nothingness, uh, the sphere of nothingness, if you will, where there's no mind to perceive. And there is... Uh, the next one, which is the eighth. These are equivalent basically in the physical realm when a person goes into the seventh or eighth jhanas, but it, not exactly. It prepares the mind for those. If the person is constantly in those states of jhana as their respite, as their refuge, as their constant dwelling, if you will, then it becomes very natural for the mind when the body is no longer working, when that moment of death comes, to, for them to just step into that world. But there is no mind to perceive any Dhamma. That's the problem. And that's why Lord Buddha felt, if you will, regret that they could never know his Dhamma because he also saw that, uh, well, one of them is... Uh, 60,000, I believe, uh, Mahakalpas, and the other one is 84,000 Mahakalpas. Vast, vast. Each Mahakalpa is, we're talking about billions of years. We're talking 84,000 of those. So not only this Buddha, but other Buddhas will come and go, and they're still going to be there in that realm. Now, so they are beyond the Mahabrahma realms. They're in fact beyond the pure abodes. The pure abodes, there's five of them. But beyond them, there are these other realms where it's just formless. We're beyond the Rupa realms. These are Arupa in that sense where there is no comprehension of anything. They cannot understand Dukkha. 
Now, on the other hand, Mahabrahma could understand because he's not um, saturated by, uh, let's say, definitely Kama Raga or Kama Lokas, where we are, or even the, some of the other realms. There's several realms of devas that are in that realm. Uh, you're nodding, so I'm presuming you, under, you, you know these. So um, how is it, by the way, so far? Uh, good. The, the, the thing that I would add to my question is that, and I believe it was Pukasati, I've lost exactly which one it was, was an anagami and didn't quite become an arahant before he was, I think, hit by a bull or something. He died. Um, so, but the story that I understand was that he was born into some high realm and immediately became enlightened on birth there. Isn't it possible that Alara Kalama Unudakarama Puda could also become Arahants after birth, at least, if not immediately on birth, and therefore not really need to hear the Buddhist teaching? Uh, no, that's not going to be possible for them. Uh, in the case, let me just clarify, uh, Venerable Kusatis, uh, he had become an anagami prior to his death. Yes. So anagamis go to these five different realms, depending on their paramis and uh, wisdom level. If there's a tiny, 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 tiny little tinge of, of, of attachment left to the Dhamma, they're still going to be reborn in even the highest of the Suddhavasa realms. Now, these are realms that only you have to have a special citizenship as an Anagami. Nobody can be reborn there. Not even a Lord Buddha can be reborn there. Why? Because once he's there, he cannot come out of it. You know, he cannot die out of it because if you die, you're going to become an arahant right there and then at the end of that life or in transition. And Lord Buddha, well, Siddhartha, let me say, Bodhisattva, that's what I meant by Siddhartha Gautama as the Buddha being reborn there. Uh, he has to come to human birth. And because this realm is the perfect balance, shall we say, a possibility, a possible pleasure and pain, the presence of both, where people people's minds can be relaxed enough, not be so agitated as the case is with animals, for example. I give you know, bird feed to birds that come in and eat all the time. I mean, they have a new generation of babies, now they're flying in to eat. But even though I stand like five feet away, 10 feet away, the moment they see me or some, you know, like any movement, guess what? Your mind is so agitated and similarly for the other lower realms and if you go higher than a human the deva realms there's so much more joy pleasure is so intense that there is not enough of an appreciation of dukkha so that's why traditionally from what i know in the, in the suttas and all that they always end up coming back to earth um, or earth-like planes if you will um, that have the similar combination of pain and pleasure. Now, um, the Brahmas, even the highest Brahmas, uh, minus the Suddhavasa, Anagami Brahmas, Mahabrahmas, for example, they are still susceptible, uh, they will actually, unless they attain Anagami or Arahanship in, that, in those lifetimes. 
they will fall if they don't attain these. Now, can a deva definitely hear the Dhamma? Absolutely. There's been countless devas, more, more than humans, they say, more than human beings who are there, who are listening to Lord Buddha's uh, Dhamma talks and his Arya Salakas. And they're around actually today. Sometimes they come in and, and uh, well, they, they have heard Lord Buddha's teaching in person. For them, it's like it was two hours ago in Savati or in Kushinara. We saw Lord Buddha close his eyes for the last time. So they have so much reverence and they don't stop talking about it to other devas. But these devas cannot penetrate into the Suddhavasa realms nor to the other formless realms to exchange, to give them Dhamma. Because had there been enough wisdom and that's why Lord Buddha, well, Siddhartha became the Buddha. He left the company of these two teachers for a reason, because there was still defilements. He asked them, okay, I've reached the seventh. Is this it? Is this, you know, Allah Kalama? This is what I am experiencing. And the teacher goes, this is, this is, okay, okay. Yes, yes, this is it. This is exactly where I am at. But Lord Buddha, because of it, well, Siddhartha, because of his paramis of wisdom, he was able to see clearly that there was the presence of defilements, of ignorance. Avijja was there. There was craving. There was a subtle craving there, which was also in Alarakalama and Uddhakaramaputta. And he brought this to their attention. He said, yes, you're offering me this great honor of teaching the whole group to Alarakalama and then to Uddhakai. He said, thank you for making me the co-teacher of all this community. But he says, there's avijja. There's the, the defilements. Can you take me there? He says, no, I can't. This is the, as far as I've gone. And in the case of Uddhakaramaputta, he hadn't even reached that stage. It was, that's why it's Rama's son, Uddhaka, Rama's son. His father had reached the eighth jhana, which he taught to his son which now had become Siddhartha's teacher. But Siddhartha, within a few weeks or a few days, he reached that eighth jhana, higher than the sun. But then because of his encouragement, uh, seeing that his student became higher than him, he worked harder and he got to the eighth jhana. But then Buddha comes, Siddhartha comes and says, excuse me, we still have avijja. So in the presence of avijja, there cannot be awakening full awakening. That's why they could never have awakened at landing, especially in the formless realms. Uh, and they didn't have enough wisdom to even become, uh, well, Sotapanna. You have to see, you have to be in the path. You have to get into the stream, stream winning. They didn't even reach there. So they had reached the sublime Jhanic states and uh, which you see in other traditions of spiritual paths, for example, to this day. And for all intents and purposes, they might look very holy, this and that, but you know, as long as they're not practicing the Eightfold Path or something very similar to it, which takes them to Arahantship, then it's not possible for them to even attain the first level of awakening. That would be my response to that question. Thank you, that's very good. Any other questions, thoughts? A very good question, by the way. Thank you for that, Greg.
Any other thoughts? I do have one short one if no one else has something else to say. I just like one to it. It came to my attention. I noticed it. Um, I know the Buddha when he gave talks that he used a lot of repetition and he used the repetition to reinforce the teaching to us. But the Buddha's role here was only in explaining the riddle. The riddle was given by another Deva. So it wasn't the Buddha's. And I notice since he's already mentioning the five hindrances as one of the riddles, he then also mentions a whole bunch of other things that um, like the fork being doubt and, and uh, the meat being delight and lust, which is sense desire and the butcher's block is sense desire. There's a whole lot of repetition there. Really, he could have simply said the five hindrances and then a the couple of other things like the five chords, etc., and simplified it, made it much more easy. And my mind tends to look towards simplifying things to make them easier to remember. So is there any reason why, apart from repetition, there is so much repetition here, so much overlap in the things that were in the riddle um, to, to teach us something? Or am I incorrect in saying when he talks about the butcher's block being sense desire, is that not the sense desire that's already in the hindrances that he's already talked about as the sieve? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, uh, you are correct in, in uh, your uh, estimation or uh, comment about um, Lord Buddha uh, appreciating highly the value of repetitions. Uh, but if you recall uh, at the end, um, the Buddha making, um, recognizing uh, Venerable Kumara Kassapa as an etadagga or, or a foremost in being um, the speaker uh, with so much versatility, using so much, uh, so many imagery uh, in uh, expressing something that might have been just a mere repetition. So as you were uh, formulating your question, um, I had that image and connection that I was uh, trying to see if there is such a thing uh, there connected to the Buddha's repetition tendency. However, one particular very important part of, or in this case, character in this story, we're neglecting to shed some light on or, or pay attention to enough. And that is the Deva, the Anagami Brahma. Apparently, from the pattern that we're seeing, uh, especially when we look at the next uh, sutta uh, with Sabhya, their other companion, the number five, the last one, from that group from the top of the rock, um, he's also actually going to be using riddles with him. So you see the pattern there, because apparently this Brahma Anagami has a thing for riddles. And the way he likes to make it a little bit poetic and, and being an anagami, especially a, a Brahmin, uh, excuse me, a Brahma anagami, um, the minds of people are very much like transparent for you. You can see how the person understands, what language to use, how they think, basically. So I wouldn't suspect uh, that uh, the anagami, the Brahma, the Deva, 
is able to see what would be the most efficacious way to really get the attention of, in this case, Kumara Kassapa. And Lord Buddha, being the Lord Buddha that he was, the compassionate teacher, who is so ready to riff off of whatever you give him, in a sense, not to make it banal sounding, um, he just took that method of delivery that the Deva had passed on to Kumara Kassapa and used it, as you pointed out, to continue his tradition of repetition. Because as you saw clearly, it's not like the 15 distinctly separate obstacles. Many of them overlap. Many of them are actually the same thing. They show up in the hindrances, let's say, the, 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 the doubt. You know, so is the case with, with anger that we saw earlier with the toad that gets, you know, swells up when, when, when touched. Same thing that we saw with the apada, ill will, anger, hatred in the hindrances. So there is, but it's a little bit more, I like to use the word, uh, more colorful way of repeating. I love imagery. So I really appreciate in this sutta that it's not like dry repetition, which can be daunting. Like, you know, when I translate, it's really tough to do the same thing, but I have to do it. It's a one-time thing. You just record it and it's done. You translate it once, it's done. Do a nice job and that's it. But when this, you can read this again and again and again with a little bit of like, hmm, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I you know, yeah. The, the, the bolt, bolt, yeah, door bolt, Ugh. Or, or a toad in the, in, the, in the ground or a fork in the road. Okay, which way am I gonna go? It's confusing, a junction. So yes, uh, I appreciate the repetition part being brought in, the repetition uh, part of the teaching modality of Lord Buddha's that we often have seen within the riddle sequence itself. I hope that addresses something. <laughs> well, are there any questions or comments? If not, we'll. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Pante. I, uh, you know, at the most basic level, that's how I'm uh, listening. But uh, it's I thought it was a fantastic uh, plethora of uh, images and and riddles. It's almost like. Uh, most takes I don't know it just just a whole other level uh, and of course I was fascinated by the example you gave of the body one square inch maybe having uh, two thousand uh, two thousand pores I mean if you don't you know the body as a kind of as an anthill because a couple of days ago I had had some acupuncture done and uh, there was a lot of needles, maybe around two dozen needles. And uh, well, I mean, they're very, very thin and they're just probably pricking, you know, maybe one or two, you know, pores, uh, a little bit painful. But when you have like two dozen needles uh, immobilizing you, it does actually the sharpness, the, uh, uh, a little pain, and the awareness of, you know, of those various spots. 
it does it kind of immobilizes you, but also makes you more conscious uh, of your body in a different way. So I was thinking, you know, when you were going through this uh, sutra today with all the examples, I was thinking, oh, of this uh, acupuncture, because, you know, you can basically have hundreds of needles on your body, mm -hmm. I, I would say, theoretically. And uh, it causes uh, some pain, but also a certain type of consciousness, uh, mm -hmm. which you don't have in everyday life, you know, you, but because the needles immobilize you, um, it does actually uh, create a certain kind of consciousness. And I, I, I know you don't like to joke, but one time when I was actually getting acupuncture from a Korean woman in New York, uh, was at acupuncture school, she kept putting the needles in and asked me where the pain was. And I said, here or here. And then she said, actually, it's maybe because uh, Jesus is not with you or God is not with you. I said, my God, uh, I couldn't do anything. I was already immobilized. And then I tried to get out of it. I said, I am a Buddhist. I'm not a Christian. But she kept still putting the needles in. I thought that was a little unethical, trying to convert me from to Christianity at the same time. But uh, so I just wanted to, you know, this is just a kind of, I'm just trying to respond to uh, your talk today about how, you know, these riddles and uh, some of these images, actually they do, you know, because they operate on a different level, they do bring you to a different type of awareness of uh, one's body and the kind of narcissism that is expended on those thousands and thousands of pores, like, I don't know, whether it's pouring shampoo or body lotion or whatever it is. I mean, it's just going into this hole, these holes and kind of disappearing or something. It's just kind of a waste in a way. So anyway, uh, I know I'm meandering now. Uh, so thank you. Yes, anyway. uh, I'm but sorry for the... Yeah. I'm sorry for the acupuncture uh, conversion uh, episode that you had to encounter. Um, uh, yes, it's it's we're we're living in a mirage in a sense. We, we every time you look in the mirror, if you have that image on top of the aggregate, which is the form, then we are fooling ourselves, and we normally are. We normally are. Uh, you can start with your name and all the other identifications that we have. Let's say I have hair. I have, uh, well, I don't have hair. I used, um, let's say, brown hair or blonde hair, blue eyes, green eyes, hazel eyes, whatever. Skin, skin tone, skin color, skin complexion, race, ethnicity, da 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 da. Hopefully, the person is shocked enough throughout life, given different situations, that they start to peel away, or it gets peeled away. Uh, these these different identifications, like the one you said about this this uh, overindulgence or narcissistic tendencies we have towards you know keep, keeping the body or the skin a certain way. Well, look at it under an electron microscope or just a regular microscope, a high school regular you know twenty buck mi microscope. You'll see things that you don't normally see. And these um, methods that we have seen whether it's the breaking of the body into the 32 parts, kesa, loma, nakadanta, the hair, head hair, body hair, 
nail, tooth, and, and, and touch, the skin. It's the way that we, um, unfortunately, many teachers have said, explained it, because many, many teachers today have lay students, lay supporters, to kind of present that caveat that this technique is specifically for bhikkhus or bhikkhunis. I disagree with that wholeheartedly uh, because the Buddha didn't make that distinction necessarily all the time. So, um, because it's helpful to ex extricate, pull yourself out from taking on the story as it, real, as this is it. Uh, a pinch comes in and all of a sudden we're shaken. You know, um, that's the rupa, right? And then what about sanya? When what about sankaras? What about vinyana? We get the we sensor uh, sensory awareness brings us a certain data, a news piece, some event. We're shocked into reality, usually in the form of somebody you know very close who has died. Who has died? That usually brings us, disengages us from our own story, uh, stories, plural. And so we're no longer caught in that momentarily, in that, um, you know, puppet show or something, Muppet show, mirage, magic show, as Bhantanyananda used to say. So, um, so meditation is for that to bring us not to this gloomy state of affairs. No, no. When mindfulness is solidly based on wisdom, you will see those pores of skin. You will feel the pain. You're like, oh, oh. But it does not incapacitate you. You're not immobilized in a sense. You're seeing life situations happen. You saw the death of the person. You see the despair, the depression, the, the anxiety but you're not quitting. You're not closing shop. You're not like giving up. You're not becoming hopeless or anything. You're realist. You're using those as, a, as, as not as an escape. And that's why one of the things that happens when, with devas, they don't like to stick around the human realm or anything lower than theirs. It's too much. The noise, the smells, even if you shower like seven times over with the most delicious perfumes, this and that, and you stand in front of a deva, deva is going to try to say, Oof, whoa, what is that? Because they are of a finer, finer realm of existence. Just like we do. Try to stand after you wash yourself and go and stand next to, let's say, Skid Row or in Skid Row in Los Angeles, where you have thousands and thousands of people who have not washed or in destitute, unfortunately, who have no options, many of them. So it's like that. But as in the being in a human realm, again, not all of us, because we need to have the paramis to come to the teachings. First of all, that's another way of venerating, right? That the Buddha says at the end with the Naga, venerate the Naga. We need to have the necessary perfections to come to the Dhamma, but that's not all. Yes, it's great, but we have work to do. Let's look at this and allow our concepts to change, our approach to change. 
And the only way to do that is yoniso manasikara, to bring in wise reflection, wise attention, in the form of sati and sampajanya, or sati and panya. As much as you're able to stay with these, that's how well we're going to progress and get out of the wheel, the hamster wheel. So I will stop here because my throat is sending signals. Stop. <laughs> um, I appreciate your uh, presence and, and patience in uh, listening today. It's, uh, um, it's a one of the most uh, you know, wonderful suttas out there in the uh, Pali canon. And I've avoided tackling it as now you see why, I think. Uh, but I'm glad we did go over it and uh, I hope it resonates with you and I hope it uh, opens doors that might have been closed for you and your practice really becomes fruitful and soon you attain arahantship. Lovely. Uh, let's uh, dedicate the merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the achievement and acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Be well. Thank you.